You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hello, my name is Jordan Lofthouse. I'm a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. I'm also a program director of academic and student programs at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. I'll be hosting a mini-series of the Hayek Program podcast on economics and the environment. And today, I'm very excited to be chatting with Megan Jenkins, who's both a brilliant researcher and a dear friend of mine. Um, In today's conversation, Megan and I will be chatting about the intersection of economics and environmentalism. But first, I want to give Megan a proper introduction. So Megan is the Senior Director of Research at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University, where she manages the center's portfolio of policy-relevant research. Uh, She has previously worked as the Director of Policy at Strata, where she managed the organization's research agenda. Megan received a master's degree in economics from Utah State University in 2016, which fact I know very well because Megan and I did our master's degrees together there at that same time. And during her master's program, she participated in the Frederick Bastiat Fellowship at the Mercatus Center. And in her free time, Megan enjoys hiking with her family in the beautiful mountains of northern Utah, which I also know well because I've gone on many hikes with Megan there too. So welcome, Megan, and thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Jordan, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I kind of want to start off with a large scale question to help kind of set the stage for the rest of our conversation. How do you think about the relationship between people and nature? Or in other words, how should we think about the environment and humanity's place in it? Yeah, that's a great question. And as you mentioned, one of my favorite things to do is go hiking in the mountains near where we live. Utah State is a beautiful campus. It's set in Logan, Utah. It's nestled right up against the Bear River Range. And there's amazing hikes within five minutes drive of where we live. So we're so blessed to have that. And spending time outdoors, spending time in those mountains really led me to have a passion for environmental policy was one of the first things I ever worked on as a student researcher was looking at the Endangered Species Act. I got a job as an undergraduate doing research with Professor Randy Simmons. And before that, I had no idea that research was even a career option. So it really opened my eyes. And here we are today, alas. But the first project I worked on was looking at how the Endangered Species Act affects local communities. And I was assigned to look at Trinity County in Northern California. It was a very timber-dependent economy. And when the Northern Spotted Owl was listed as endangered, this really affected the county in a huge way. And I I went back and read all these newspaper accounts of what happened in that area. Basically, the economy shut down. There was no more timber no more timber harvesting allowed, right? It was in order to protect the, the Northern Spotted Owl. But what ended up happening was the county had no revenue to pay its teachers to support its public services. People had to move elsewhere. They had to go elsewhere for education and for jobs. Their schools were shut down. And this was the first time that my eyes were really open to this idea that 
you know, we can have environmental policy with really good intentions, but we need to be evaluating the actual outcomes and looking at how we can structure policies to get outcomes that benefit nature. Of course, we don't want to have our endangered species going extinct, but we also need to recognize that humans and nature are inextricably linked, right? Humans live within nature as well. And that realization really fueled my passion to work in this space. Yeah, that's great. It it kind of reminds me, I think you and I have read in the past a book or a concept called the rambunctious garden. And I'm wondering what if the rambunctious garden, that concept factors into your worldview with where environmentalism and economics intersects. Absolutely. That is one of my favorite books of all time. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend you pick it up. It's called Rambunctious Garden. It's by Emma Maris. She's an ecologist who I've actually had the pleasure of meeting and talking to in person and fangirling over, which was amazing. Uh, but her book talks about this idea that, you know, for, for a long time, environmental policy was based on this concept of a balance of nature, that if we could somehow restore nature to its pre-human state, it would be some type of Garden of Eden where everything would be in balance and that that's what we should be aiming for is to keep nature in balance. But she actually talks about the fact that nature has never been in a perfect equilibrium state, right? It's always evolving. Every landscape is always changing. The species that live there are changing. They're migrating just like human beings, right? And that we need to embrace that fact, accept it first, and then embrace it even and say, okay, in our environmental management, we need to recognize that landscapes are changing, that humans are part of those landscapes, and then manage for a particular goal. So maybe our goal is biodiversity. Maybe our goal is you know, to restore a particular species to an area. But recognizing that any of those goals are somewhat arbitrary, and maybe that's okay, is really what Emma Maris talks about. And then the rambunctious part of it, right? Embracing the fact that some landscapes are full of amazing nature, even if they don't look like a pristine wilderness area. And I love her stories of like inner city urban parks where there's actually a surprising amount of biodiversity and habitat for different birds and different species that's just tucked in little pockets of a city. And how it doesn't have to be this completely untouched wilderness for it to be meaningful and important habitat. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of some research that you and I have done in the past too, like talking about Yellowstone National Park and other national parks is the Yellowstone that early explorers saw really doesn't look very much like the Yellowstone that we see today, not only because of the tourists, obviously, but also because the fire patterns, like Native Americans were actively managing the land before it was made into a national park. When it was made into a national park, federal government changed policies. There was a no fire policy. Then there was like, let it burn policy. We've had these swings. And so now like the actual ecology of Yellowstone, even though it's a wilderness, it's kind of a manufactured wilderness. It's we make it look the way we want to make it look, not the way that it naturally is, whatever that really means. Right. And I've learned a lot from you, Jordan, from going to Yellowstone together and, and learning about... Jordan is an amazing tour guide for anyone uh, that ever needs a tour of the DC area or Yellowstone or really anywhere in between. I'm sure he would give you some facts. But that's that's totally right. And I think 
I think we made a lot of progress in environmental policy in embracing change as a part of landscapes. Like you mentioned, there used to be much more of a policy with wildfires where it was like, stop a fire as soon as possible, no matter the cost, right? Suppress any wildfire. And we've learned that that actually led to a huge buildup of fuels that caused that massive wildfire in Yellowstone, I think in the late 80s. And we've learned that actually having those prescriptive burns where we're burning areas on purpose with a management plan in place helps the landscape. And it is, like you mentioned, Native Americans were conducting this practice long before Lewis and Clark showed up, right? And it's it's been part of the landscape for a, a very long time. Yeah, that's great. And so I think thinking about the rambunctious part of nature is important. So there's rambunctiousness in nature. There's also rambunctiousness, I guess you can call it, in human activities. Humans are trading with one another. We're exchanging. We're interacting. We're socializing. I want to turn now to the economics perspective. Um, A lot of your work has looked at environmental issues through an economics lens. And before you kind of implicitly talked about the idea of unintended consequences and trade-offs, how good intentions don't always equal good outcomes. For people who care about environmental issues like species conservation or water conservation or climate change mitigation or whatever, why do you think economics is important to understand? I think it's so important, Jordan. And the, and the why, I think it comes back to, you know, we can't just put a policy in place and say, oh, we had good intentions when we created this. We wanted to save species. And so it's a good policy. We need to actually look at what happens. And that's where incentives comes in. I think if all environmental policy experts out there were just totally pro-incentives, if we could just instill incentives as the biggest concept that everyone is thinking about when they're crafting policies and thinking about when they're evaluating policies, that would be the number one concept that I would would advocate for really ingraining in people's thinking. Like when I create this regulation that says, if you have an endangered species on your property, you will be restricted in what you can do. If anything bad happens to the species, you will be punished. Really thinking like beyond the first level conditions of that. It's like, okay, maybe that seems like it will help species, but how do real people respond? And I think that's what Eleanor Ostrom did so well in her work is go out and talk to those real people and understand that more complex real world situation where people are interacting with nature doesn't mean that they hate endangered species, that they want to destroy nature. It means that they are actors on their land. They're trying to keep their livelihood going, keep their ranch going or their farm going. And they have a heavy-handed regulator coming in and telling them what they can or cannot do. And that's going to create a different sort of incentive than having a more local university extension agent, for example, working with landowners to help them improve their land, both for better production of farmland or better grazing or whatever it may be, but also to help species. Right? Our research... At CGO, one of the first pieces I wrote on cooperative conservation looked at interviews of landowners. And it's one of my favorite pieces because it's going straight to the source and saying, what do people actually think about endangered species? And actually, the vast majority of them are in favor of helping preserve species in some way. They want to participate in conservation. They view themselves as really important stewards of the lands that they live on and share with all this wildlife. They also have different levels of trust in different agencies. So 
federal agencies have lower levels of trust with landowners than more local ones. And I think that makes sense, especially given what we've learned from Eleanor Ostrom's work. Yeah, exactly. And it kind of reminds me too of the example with the Endangered Species Act that's often brought up is this idea of shoot, shovel and shut up in terms of incentives, where one way that landowners, you know, farmers, ranchers, whatever, they interpret these restrictions under the Endangered Species Act is they uh, see, it's like, hey, if an endangered species is found on your land, you don't get to use your land anymore. Well, they end up thinking, well, uh, might as well kind of get rid of the problem before it becomes a bigger problem. So then they, you know, shoot, shovel and shut up. I think that's something that everyone should be aware of, number one. And that's, yeah, boils down just to incentives, like you were saying, like, that's, that's the end of it. Right. I totally agree. One of those questions in the surveys I mentioned actually asked landowners, have you ever taken action to harm an endangered species? And they were actually asking about prairie dogs, Utah prairie dogs. And I believe it was over 30% admitted that they had done this. They tried to discourage prairie dogs from coming onto their land or actually harmed them. And of course, the actual number is probably much higher, unfortunately. I'm surprised that many people were forthcoming about that. Exactly. So I'm wondering kind of in this economic toolkit that we can use to evaluate environmental issues like incentives is one, one like economic concept, unintended consequences is another. I'm wondering maybe what other big tools in the economic toolkit you see as being important for uh, thinking through environmental problems. Yeah, I mean, I think a powerful one, and it comes back to incentives, is actually paying people to do what we want them to do, right? Creating markets or market-like mechanisms that can help encourage conservation. We've done a little bit of work on conservation banking, which helps do this. But there are also programs that just straight up pay landowners to, for example, set aside part of their land that is environmentally sensitive and take it out of production so that migrating birds can have that habitat as they travel through corridors in the Midwest. The Conservation Reserve Program is an example of that happening. And there are challenges with these programs. There's challenges with knowing, especially what are we paying them for, right? And then measuring, like, what is the actual improvement we're getting per dollar? And I think that's, of course, a real challenge. It's it's hard to measure where these species are and how many of them there are. But I do think it's worth experimenting with these programs, especially at a local scale. Yeah, and that reminds me of, you know, Eleanor Ostrom often talked about no panaceas. It's You don't want to just say, oh, conservation banking worked in one place. Let's just slap that on a different place and we'll just assume that it works too. It's You're going to need to tailor any specific policy or approach to local environmental circumstances, local you know, beliefs and values of community members and, uh, you know, on and on and on. Based on that, I, I think this is a good transition to talk about a chapter that you and I wrote a few years ago called Cooperation or Conflict, Two Approaches to Conservation. Um, that chapter is in a volume titled Regulation and Economic Opportunity, Blueprints for Reform. You kind of already hinted at it, but I want to see if we can dive deeper into the difference between what we might call a cooperation approach versus a conflict approach and kind of thinking through how the an economic perspective can help us think about facilitating cooperation and stopping conflict. Do you have any initial thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I really like it, the opening that we wrote, Jordan. Of course, I'm biased because I'm one of the authors. <laughs> but we did talk about the Utah Prairie Dog and this example of a southern Utah town where the Utah Prairie Dog was creating a lot of havoc on the neighborhood cemetery, it turns out. And it was burrowing and disrupting headstones. And the local people were very upset by this. I think a lot of people would be if you're loved one's resting place is being, you know, disturbed by these little rodents. But the Utah Prairie Dog was listed as endangered, and so it was protected. And this really limited what the city was able to do to get them out of there. And I think that's an example of a time where kind of a one-size-fits-all policy of protect the prairie dog, no one can harm it, no matter what, because it is endangered maybe wasn't the best approach, right? And we contrast that with the greater sage grouse where we talk about a more state-led polycentric approach where different state agencies were working together with private environmental conservation groups to help the greater sage grouse recover in a way that is not one size fits all, that is a little bit more locally tailored, a little bit more flexible to local conditions and gets people involved who know the issues and who know those points of conflict between humans and and the wildlife we're trying to protect and maybe can help find win-win policies or win-win solutions that help protect both. Yeah, and I think that is, for me at least, the the crux of the difference between a cooperation approach and a conflict approach is cooperation is going to happen when people see some sort of interaction as win-win so like in the private sector, if you and I decide to exchange, like you're selling something and I give you money, obviously, I value that thing more than I value the money and you value the money more than I value the thing I'm buying from you. So we're both better off by, you know, exchanging. When it comes to, you know, more complicated situations where the government is involved, it seems like that's where conflict can really arise is if we're not careful, a lot of government policies can end up becoming zero sum and even negative sum. And then, of course, I mean, that's going to be conflict. That's, I mean, that's the game. If you win, I lose. I don't want to lose. So I'm going to try not to lose. We uh, get into conflict. So I'm wondering if you see, like, for example, like the Endangered Species Act, where there's been a lot of conflict in the past, the more cooperative approach, maybe tweaks on the margin. You mentioned the conservation banking. Do you see any other types of tweaks that could be made to say species conservation? Yeah, I think there are ways to embed incentives within the policies that we're creating. There needs to be a positive reward for helping species recover, right? Um, One example I can think of Under the Endangered Species Act, uh, a species can be listed as endangered, which means it's in imminent peril. We need to help it or it's going to potentially go extinct. Or it can be listed as threatened, which means that there's a chance it may become endangered soon if we don't take action. And under the Trump administration, there was actually a policy that said, let's treat threatened species and endangered species differently. Let's actually reward landowners for helping a species not become endangered by having less punitive regulations on threatened species than on endangered ones. And I think that was actually a a logical thing to do, right? If we're thinking about incentives, if I want to help the Utah prairie dog 
recover, I also want to have fewer restrictions on what I can do with my land where they live. And maybe those two things can create a win-win situation. That also reminds me, I know we're talking about government approaches. Um, This conversation is reminding me to something we also wrote about in that chapter, which is the American Prairie Reserve, which I know both of us have experienced the American Prairie Reserve up close and personally because we went camping there for a few days, which was a lot of fun. But the American Prairie Reserve is really fascinating because it's a private kind of willing buyer, willing seller approach to conservation. And instead of relying solely on this top-down kind of government approach, it's a private organization that gets donations that's trying to build up basically the Great Plains to what Lewis and Clark saw over 200 years ago with, you know, bison and bears and wolves and elk and deer and everything. And it's interesting in that case to see how that works, because it's this willing buyer, willing seller approach where they go about from the beginning with the win-win type of situation. It's like, hey, I want to buy your land from you. If, you know, the rancher, the farmer says yes, then everyone's better off as opposed to the kind of older way that we've engaged with the Endangered Species Act, which is if you cause any harm to one of these listed species, then, you know, you have some of your property rights stripped away from you. I'm wondering kind of from your experience in researching and actually like going to and camping on the American Prairie Reserve, what are some of your biggest takeaways or impressions from that? Yeah, that was a fun trip when we went up there, Jordan, wasn't it? We took some student researchers who were working on environmental policy with us and we drove all the way up from Logan. You drive to Bozeman, which is about five hours. And then I think it was five more hours after that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's almost to Canada. Yeah. Northeastern Montana. And it's a huge area. It's such an ambitious project. I think the goal is to create an area that's going to be way bigger than Yellowstone when it's completed. And like you said, Jordan, taking out the fences, creating this wide open space that's primarily for conservation. It's for wildlife to roam free. And they have their own herds of bison that they are managing there and um, prairie dog colonies. So the biggest lessons, yeah, I mean, I think it's a great example of voluntary free market conservation working well. Like you mentioned, people are, especially as, as older people retire or pass away and their, their heirs maybe don't want to operate a huge ranch or aren't able to step into that lifestyle the same way, they have the option to sell it to American Prairie Reserve and know that it will be preserved as open space, that it won't be developed, which is pretty cool. They're not relying on government regulation to do this. They're relying on donations, on people who want to sell their land and make it part of this amazing, hopefully long-lasting project. You can actually go and camp on the land too, which I think is very cool. They're keeping it open to the public. And I've never camped somewhere like that before. When I camp in Utah, it's very much mountains, you're camping way up high in a forest. The American Prairie Reserve is a grassland, right? It's one of the few remaining wide open intact grasslands in the world, actually, which is part of why they chose that location. And so when you camp there, it's a little eerie for us mountain people. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought too. It was once we got out there, I mean, did we drive for like 40 miles or something on a dirt road? It was like you were in the middle of the ocean, but it wasn't water, it was grass. It was, yeah, I've never been anywhere like that too. As far as the eye could see in every direction, not a single light, not a single like power pole, nothing. 
nothing. Yeah. And when we woke up, the sound, the first sound I heard was coyotes howling all around us, which was such a cool and also a little bit scary experience. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's, I think the American Prairie Reserve experience too is really cool because it's, like you said, it's a great example of kind of mar- free market environmentalism where it's a private organization trying to put together more or less a privately owned national park in a sense. But it also, is next to other federal lands like the um, Charlie Russell National Wildlife Refuge and the Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument, like actually are adjacent to it. And so to make this whole project actually come to life, there has to be, you know, give and take and um, interactions between different government agencies, local communities, this nonprofit organization that's trying to put this together. And so it's a, a very interesting, you know, polycentric approach where you have different groups working together, exchanging, talking. Now, that's not to say that everything is, you know, hunky-dory. Obviously, there are people who don't want the American Prairie Reserve. I know there are a few groups that are also opposing the American Prairie Reserve for various reasons. It's a new and interesting way to think about large-scale landscape conservation that hasn't really been tried a lot of places. And it's been, a, I think, a, not only an interesting academic exercise to watch what's happening, but as a person who values, you know, hiking the outdoors, environmentalism, it's an important way to think about or a new important thing to um, understand. For sure. Yeah. And some of that conflict, I think, is really interesting to to look at. You mentioned some conflict with neighbors and I think it's especially coming from longtime ranchers who view it as a threat to their way of life, right? Who see American Prairie Reserve is coming and buying these ranches and not ranching, and they don't like that, right? But that that is the beauty of a market is that people who value conservation can buy land and use it for conservation. And if you value land for ranching, you can buy it and use it for ranching. Right. Yes, that's yeah, that's definitely true. It's interesting to see. Yeah, not only differences in how people want the land to be used, I guess, but also there's often misconceptions about what the American Prairie Reserve is, because it's a private organization that has no intention of turning the land over to the federal government. But there's also a lot of local people up there that see this as a ploy to basically use the Antiquities Act to turn all of this area into a national monument that would basically restrict things. And I think that comes back to this, you know, now over a century long, century long conflict that is born out of the Antiquities Act, where the president just has power to declare any piece of land a, you know, a national monument, and that puts severe restrictions on how federal land can be used. And so that in the past has caused a lot of conflict, whereas compared to that approach, this willing buyer, willing seller approach is, you know, much less conflict written, not zero, but much less at least. I want to ask you now about, you were an editor on a volume titled The Environmental Optimism of Eleanor Ostrom. And we've mentioned the term polycentricity before, which comes from, you know, a lot from the work of Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom. As you were working with the contributors to the volume, What were some of the biggest insights you learned from the work of Eleanor Ostrom? And why do you think her research leads to an optimistic view? Like it it 
it's interesting to think that a social science approach can give people a sense of optimism. Yeah, that was such a fun project to work on, Jordan. Taking Eleanor Ostrom's work was, was what we, we asked authors to take her work and apply it to modern environmental issues and help us understand how people are coming up with solutions to these issues. And I think the most optimistic lesson from it is just how many places where it's working well, where people are coming up with some solutions that are creative and that don't depend on some overarching entity coming in with a perfect solution, but rather rely on regular people working together to figure out, okay, how can we solve this problem of water allocation or overfishing or whatever the issue may be. And that there's a lot of places where, not to say that they're completely solving the environmental problems and that they're, the problems are gone, but I think there's just so many examples where people are coming up with creative solutions that improve upon the status quo and that use incentives and that involve local stakeholders in a really inspiring way. Yeah, that that reminds me too. I, a lot of what Eleanor Ostrom talked about is all about institutional analysis and institutional design. And I guess what really matters is how institutions channel human behavior. We could, you can have a, I mean, a vast array of different types of institutional configurations. It could be largely private property rights. It could be largely government things. It could be community-based. You can think about like, you know, Ostrom's work in governing the commons where it's local communities doing the governance. It can be a combination of all three in some sort of arrangement. Um, but I think kind of tying our, this conversation of Ostrom and our previous conversation about cooperation and conflict, it's, some institutions are more likely to encourage people to look for those mutually beneficial outcomes, and others are more likely to spark conflict that leads to more costs than benefits. It kind of reminds me of, you know, kind of the history of economic thought here, but Thomas Hobbes, he's talking about the state of nature, human nature is the state of nature is nasty, brutish and short, right? As people are going to fight and kill each other, unless we have some overarching Leviathan to control us. But then Adam Smith said that human nature is to truck, barter and exchange. And it's interesting that there's these two concepts of human nature that seem so opposite. And for me, at least, what the difference is, what institutions are these people under is it, there are certain institutional structures that will lead people to have nasty, brutish, and short lives, or there are other institutional structures that will lead people to truck, barter, and exchange, find those win-win situations. And I think that's where a lot of Ostrom's work comes in, not only with environmental stuff, but basically anything, is under kind of polycentric arrangements, people can find institutional structures that bring the best out in people and, you know, limit the worst kinds of human behavior. <laughs> Maybe like you've seen in some of Ostrom's work, where does that lead us to? Where does that point us toward for people who care about environmental issues? Yeah, one of my favorite chapters in the volume was chapter four on population growth and the governance of complex institutions. The subtitle is my favorite. People are more than mouths to feed. And this is Pierre Desrochers and Joanna Zermack, probably butchering both of their names, but they did an amazing job on this chapter. And they're talking about really Garrett Hardin and the tragedy of the commons and contrasting that with Ostrom's work and 
I think it really ties into what you're saying, Jordan, with Hobbes and this debate over whether are we just trapped in this state of nature? Are we just doomed to use up all the resources and overpopulate the earth and create all of this climate change? And that's it. And that's the end. Or are we actually creative, innovative human beings that have the ability to create our own institutions and our own rules and our own solutions and to experiment with those and to figure out which ones work and which ones don't work and which ones we maybe want to set aside. All the advances in history have been really people setting aside institutions that didn't work well and embracing ones that lead to more cooperation and more freedom and more ability for human beings to innovate and come up with solutions that serve each other and that create the opportunity for truck barter and exchange like you're talking about. So that's one of my favorite chapters. Um, A lot of the work we do at CGO is on environmental policy. And this is what we're working on is this question of like, how can the future be vastly better than the present? And I think a lot of environmental policy today is extremely pessimistic. It's focused on how do we avoid the worst case scenario? Obviously, we want to do that. But I think we can shoot higher and we can look at making the future way better than it is today. And the environment is a big piece of that. Yeah, this totally reminds me of the work by economist Julian Simon. I think the book called uh, The Ultimate Resource. What is the ultimate resource? But the human mind is the more people we have in the world, the more minds we have to think up new things that we haven't even thought of yet. So we can think up of new inventions. We can think up new institutional arrangements that make things better off. And I think the debate started in the 70s, but it was Julian Simon versus Paul Ehrlich, who was famous for his book, The Population Bomb, right? And they had all these bets that were going on about what's going to happen, you know, in the next 10, 20, 30 years. And Simon was optimistic. Ehrlich was pessimistic about the future. And basically on all counts, Simon won out. Everything was more abundant and cheaper than it was before. And I think that's largely because of, you know, the ultimate resource. Under the right institutional arrangements, humans, more humans aren't a burden. They're more, not only, yeah, more art, more food, more everything, but we can also find new and better ways of preserving species. I mean, there's even a movement now, it's a bit controversial, but like the extinction, like we might be able to bring back extinct species. I was reading something recently about, I think in Siberia, they might try and bring back, you know, woolly mammoths on the tundra. And that would not only be de-extinction, but it would also um, help, you know, mitigate carbon, car, uh, carbon emissions in the tundra. So lots of cool, interesting, sometimes controversial things. Yeah, we're actually working on a paper right now on the American chestnut tree, which is a fun one. It went extinct due to chestnut blight. It was this disease in the early 1900s that just wiped all the chestnut trees out. And it turns out that through genetic editing, we can actually bring these trees back in a form that would be pretty much the same American chestnut tree, with the only exception that they would be resistant to blight. And so they could potentially survive and we could have American chestnuts, which were beautiful, gigantic trees that covered much of the East Coast and people loved them. We have songs about them that we still sing, but maybe we could bring them back. Yeah, and I think that's why it's so important to allow, I mean, I guess, kind of switching to a normative direction, I think that's why liberty is so important in a society is because humans are only the ultimate resource when they're free to 
engage in exchange, not only physical, ex- like, you know, trading things, but also, you know, exchange of ideas, exchange of thought, allowing people with seemingly controversial opinions to try things out. A lot of times the most transformative technologies or whatever are almost always initially hated by the people around them. I've seen, <laughs> recently I was seeing this thing, it was a, an old poster from like the early 1900s, like the 19 like 1910s or so. And it was of all of these power lines over a street. And it was a mother and a daughter walking by these power lines and electricity shooting out and frying this mother and daughter. And it was like this anti-electricity poster. Wow. Yeah. It's like the evils of electricity. And so it's very strange to think like, oh, now we're like, what a silly thing to think. But, you know, that's why I think liberty is so important for you know, solving environmental issues is we need people to think of new ideas, try new things out, find interesting alternative ways of producing things, producing electricity, producing goods, producing food. Yeah, there was actually one example in Utah. I I think it might be still up and running. This is from a few years ago, but there was a natural gas power plant down pretty close to the town of Nephi in Utah, where they're obviously burning natural gas for electricity, but they can siphon off the uh, carbon dioxide that's coming out of the exhaust. And then they can pump that into a greenhouse where they actually can grow plants like tomatoes way faster than they would normally grow. And so you can actually turn this kind of you know waste product that's contributing to climate change into something that not only like benefits people, but benefits them on multiple margins. Like they get faster growing tomatoes in these greenhouses. So, I mean, that's just one small, little bit silly example of ways in which, you know, the human mind can come up with all of these creative, innovative solutions that we may not have thought of before. Right. Absolutely. I think about the global whaling industry back in the day was really created because we needed sperm oil, right? We used this oil to for lighting. And the thing that saved saved the whales was not necessarily a law, right? Although we do have laws protecting whales, but it was the creation of better oils, vegetable oils, different oils that could light our homes in a cheaper, better way. And then it just didn't make sense to hunt whales anymore for for their oil. Yeah. Because if I remember the history correctly, it was whale oil, then switched to kerosene because kerosene was a better, cheaper alternative. And then kerosene switched to electricity once electricity became a cheaper better alternative. Right. Exactly. And so having that ability to innovate and try something new, I think is is just crucial to human progress. We released a paper recently on the intersection between environmental policy and immigration that I think is really fascinating. It's called Adapting to Climate Change Through Migration. And the idea there is that as climate change continues to heat up certain areas of the earth, it's one important way of adapting to that will be migration, right? Just as with wildlife, right? We know that wildlife uh, migrates to where conditions are more hospitable. Human beings do the same thing. The only difference with human beings is that we've created these arbitrary borders that prevent that from happening or create very strict rules around that happening. And so the authors of this paper look at how 
immigration policy and allowing for migration to happen will be an important way that we adapt to climate change. Yeah. And if, if I'm not mistaken, that paper is by Nathan Goodman who and Eustace Enninga. And Nathan's a senior fellow with the Hayek program and Eustace is a current Adam Smith fellow. So, you know, more Mercatus CGO crossover right there. Amazing. And there's actually a video of Eustace talking about the paper that we created and he did such a good job. So you should definitely check that out. Yeah. I'm Now that's, that's really interesting too. I'm wondering if, you know, with CGO's work, kind of the broader agenda of it's more than just environmental issues, it's environmental issues, it's population growth, it's immigration. I'm wondering how kind of your work at CGO kind of what's the big picture there? How are all of these seemingly fairly unrelated things like environmental issues, population growth, immigration, tech policy? How are all these things related in your view? We're really interested in improving human life and in particular, improving it by a lot. So we talk about this idea of abundance, the idea that the future can be vastly better than today not just a little bit better than the status quo, but that we can continue to make massive improvements in human quality of life, like we have over the last 200 years, but that we shouldn't sit on our laurels, that we should continue to pursue those massive improvements. And the reason we've chosen those topics is we think they're essential to improving human life, right? We've talked a lot here about technology, technological advancements, have made massive improvements in the way we live in our houses and the way we get electricity and the way we receive healthcare and treatments that lengthen our lives and make our lives less painful and difficult. Immigration is where we get new creative minds to come and help us figure out solutions to the problems that we're facing. A disproportionate number of companies in the US that have been super successful and transformative were founded by immigrants that came to the US, had an idea, worked super hard to implement it, and started a really successful company. And then environmental stewardship, right? We want to live in an environment that is carefully taken care of. We want to have wildlife to enjoy. We want to have clean air. All of these things are crucial to a future of abundance where human beings are living better lives than we can even imagine today. And so that's really what we're trying to do is, is understand how can public policies help achieve that future, which ones are standing in the way right now, and how can we reform those? Yeah. So I'm curious, it, it doesn't have to be just environmental, but you know, environmental stuff, immigration, what do you see as some of the lowest hanging fruit that could improve um, you know, abundance or human flourishing overall? I think one of the first things I would do if I had a magic wand would be to reform NEPA to the National Environmental Policy Act. And this is a huge landmark piece of legislation that really creates a permitting process for any projects on federal land um, to go through before they can move forward. And the idea here is to make sure we're considering all the environmental impacts, which is, of course, a good thing. But it turns out that it is holding up a lot of the projects that we desperately need to complete to reach our environmental goals. My colleague Jenny Morales recently released a database of clean energy projects that have been held back by NEPA. And it's fascinating to look at how long these projects sit in NEPA review and how long it takes to get through that process before they can start producing clean energy. So that's one of the first things I would do is reform NEPA, 
especially make it easier for clean energy projects. That's something that we need to move towards a lower carbon future where we have more energy that is contributing less to climate change um, would be the reform NEPA. And it would also allow us to take advantage of more technologies for energy than we are right now. I think we have focused too much on a few technologies and a lot of our government policies have funneled investment and dollars into technologies like wind and solar, which have made massive improvements. And that's a good thing. But there are other technologies like geothermal that could really expand our ability to produce reliable, affordable energy anywhere in the U.S., but we have policies like NEPA standing in the way. Yeah, that also, so NEPA is the federal law. I know kind of a parallel state law in California at CEQA is pretty similar. And it's interesting too, because it has the same underlying intentions, like making sure that we're evaluating our environmental impacts before we just jump into a project. But it's interesting to look at CEQA and kind of the unintended consequences of that in California. So California has some of the most expensive housing anywhere in the country. And some parts of California have some of the most expensive housing anywhere in the world. And it's interesting because CEQA can be used as this battering ram for nimbyism, the not in my backyard stuff. So basically, if you want to stop a project from going through, you just throw CEQA at it and you just keep going with like, you know, litigation. And it can, I mean, it could, the same thing can happen with NEPA too. It can be used as this battering ram to stop any project that you want. And so I can see that as being a, huge unintended consequence of this law that was basically meant to just help us keep track of the environmental issues that were going on. And then also NEPA, I know some of my research research has done this too, but NEPA also applies on Native American reservations. And some of these reservations are the most impoverished places in the United States. And on certain tribal trust lands, you know, it can take months and months, if not years to get through all of the permitting processes to even like build a small house on a piece of land. So there we have like an environmental law that has direct implications on some of the most marginalized communities in the United States. It has impacts everywhere, especially on our infrastructure, on our ability to maintain our roads and take care of them and to build new ones as well. But also our electrical grid is in massive need of modernization, especially as we like add all of the solar and wind to it. We need to make sure that we're able to create a, a grid that's resilient to blackouts and to having energy flowing in and out of it. Uh, and NEPA, the NEPA process is not making that easier right now. Yeah, and I think that's, it seems strange in you know, kind of the polarized world that we live in today is it can be hard to have these conversations. And I think, you know, the rhetoric with which we have these conversations is really important because like you were mentioning before, the people that were surveyed about endangered species is, you know, a lot of these ranchers in, you know, say the Western United States are often, you know, very conservative, but they do care about endangered species. They do want to aid in conservation. So I think this is the kind of I think there's a happy middle ground where, you know, ardent environmentalists and maybe, you know, people who are engaging in ranching or farming can have a conversation about ways to logically and, you know, practically reform some of these laws to allow better win-win situations that make it easier to actually engage in environmentally helpful or environmentally beneficial projects that also benefit people in other ways too. Yeah, I think that's the dream for sure. There's going to be a lot of work to get there. 
Yeah, to kind of close up, I was want to ask you a little bit more about CGO. I know like the Mercatus Center, CGO has a number of student programs. I was just wondering if you could tell us, us a bit more about the CGO student programs and for those who might be interested in opportunities to get involved in research with you guys. I would love to. So CGO has a research fellowship for 20 undergraduate and 20 graduate fellows every year. And that fellowship pays them to come and get their degree at Utah State and spend 20 hours a week doing research with us. So they get real hands-on experience, much like your fellows at Mercatus. Our goal is that every single one of them finishes the program with a co-authored research publication. Of course, they have to earn that right, but we have high expectations of them and we have found them to be more than willing to rise to that occasion. So if you know students, especially maybe undergrads who are interested in getting a master's perhaps outside of BC, they want to come live in the mountains for a few years, get a free master's degree and some research experience, please send them to me and I would love to talk to them. That's great. Well, I want to thank you so much for this conversation today. I mean, we could keep talking about this stuff for hours. And I know in the past, we have talked about this stuff for hours and hours on end. Thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you again sometime. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. It's been super fun. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.